chapter 11. And so I will read it, but it's good for you to have the text in front of you so you know I'm not making this stuff up. Um, as you turn in there, I want you to think about what is the greatest achievement you have ever done? What's the greatest thing you've ever achieved? What's the greatest thing you have ever done? The biggest accomplishment. Like, and then think about what it would be like if everybody knew you by that accomplishment. Like you walked into a room and that's how people saw you. Like I walked into a room and people said, man, there's Tim Joya. One time him and his little brother ate 50 chicken wings in one sitting. It was impressive. Think about what it would be like if you walked in and everybody knew you by your greatest achievement. Now I want you to think about what's the worst thing you've done? What's the thing that you hope nobody knows about? The thing you would hate to be known for. The thing you would hate for people to think of when they thought of your name. That's kind of where we find David. We've been looking at the story of David for the last couple of weeks, and that's kind of the world he lives in, at least for us, right? We, when we think about David, we think about David and Goliath that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And what's the other big thing we think about when we think about David? David and Bathsheba. No trick questions here, I promise David and Bathsheba. Those are the two things. When you think of David, you think of this king, you think of this man after God's own heart, but you think of David and Goliath, you think of David and Bathsheba. We're going to look at this story today. We're going to look at the worst of David's life. We're going to see how his life, he makes bad decision after bad decision and, and puts himself into this horrible place where there are consequences that reach for generations. But even in the midst of that, we talked a few weeks ago about David's character, and we said that David had faith in God, that David trusted God, and we see that through his character, his relationship with God, he is able to trust God even in the midst of the ugliness. He is able to run to God and not hide from Him. And so we're going to see that this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into 2 Samuel chapter 11. Heavenly Father, God, you're good, and we thank you. We thank you we get to come to this building and and to proclaim your goodness and proclaim your victory. God, as we open up the word, as we look at your servant David, as we look at his life, Lord, teach us. You have a message for us here. You have something you want to challenge us, encourage us, exhort us with. So God, I pray that you do what it is you want to do this morning. Let me get out of your way so that you can do a mighty work this morning as we look and are challenged by the way David responds to his sin. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This David, we've been looking at David for the last couple of weeks, and remember when he was 
When we first saw David, when we first read about him, he was the runt of the litter. He was the eighth of Jesse's sons. He was the youngest. He was the forgotten one. And he's anointed to be the future king. And we looked at David and Goliath, and then we looked at his friendship with Jonathan as he was growing and, li- and working in Saul's court. By this point, by the point where we are in this story here, David has been anointed king. Saul is dead, long gone. David is no longer the youngest guy in the family. David is 40 or 50 years old. He's not a kid anymore. And so I, I say that because, A, I want to put it in context. B, I want you to understand as, as we see David make these poor decisions, this is not the youth, youthful uh, exuberance and just poor decision-making of a kid who doesn't know any better. This is a grown man who knows better. This is the king of Israel. He's 40 or 50 years old. And right off the bat, we see things have changed with David. Right? We think back to when he went and fought Goliath and the courage and the, and the excitement and he was ready to tackle everything. And now we see right in verse 1 that David was not in the place he should have been. Right in verse 1, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, after the weather had subsided, the the ground was easier to march on, and it was easier to set up camp, and so you would wait until springtime. And the Israelites had been in this war for going on for a year or two now at this point, and so it was time to get back to it. And at the time when he should have been out to battle, he stays at home. Is that bad? I don't think it's bad. The battle that he was fighting, that the Israelites were fighting, was about 40 miles away from Jerusalem. So really, he could have sent messengers back and forth. He could still control the battle plans from Jerusalem. It's not a bad decision that he stayed home. If anything, even if he was at the battlefield, he would have been hidden away. At that time, he would have been hidden away in a tent, not out for him to be killed, because just like in chess back then, if the king dies, game over. And so if anything, it might even be safer that he stayed in Jerusalem. But here we see, this is the time when kings go into battle. Was it the best thing he could have done? You see, David was called to lead, right? We talked about his courage, how he stood toe-to-toe with Goliath. But now he wasn't even with his men. He decided to stay back. My dad um, was a fireman in the city for almost 30 years. And uh, he retired as a lieutenant. Um, And as a lieutenant on fire department, when you show up at a fire, you no longer have to be the guy that goes kicking down doors or ripping open roofs. You get to be the guy kind of doing game planning outside. You kind of send everybody in the way they need to go and are kind of the quarterback of the situation. But my dad, because he's Superman, decided that's not how I'm going to be a lieutenant. And so he would roll up to fires and he'd strap on the gas tank, you know, the oxygen tank and grab his axe and he would go right in. He'd be the first one in the building because he wanted to lead with courage and he wanted to show his men This is how you be a fireman. This is how you do this job. I'm going to lead you by example. That's what David was called to be, but David decides, I'm going to stay at home. I'm not going to go and be where I'm supposed to be. Again, is it bad that he did that? No. Not the best either. We see in verse 2 now, not only is he stay at home, but in verse 2 it says, it was late one afternoon and he arose from his couch, goes for a walk. Listen, there is nothing bad with taking a nap. One of my mentors once said to me, the most spiritual thing you can do sometimes is take a nap. Nothing bad. Love naps. They're wonderful. But in contrast to what his men were doing, where David should have been, they are fighting for him. They are fighting for the country. He is in his palace taking a nap on the couch. Compared to where he should have been, it seems he's resting while his men are fighting. 
David, somewhere along the way here, has accepted good in place of best. He accepts it's fine instead of thriving. And so he gets up and he goes and he walks on his roof, which would have been normal at that time of day. Most every building had a flat roof. And you could walk up there because later on in the day it would get a little cooler. It'd be a little bit of a break from the heat and the humidity. And so he goes up and he takes a walk on the roof and he sees her. He sees this woman bathing. And he lusts after her. He sees that she is beautiful and decides he wants her. It starts with just seeing someone. He just happened to see her and saw she was beautiful. It's kind of similar sounding wording to what we saw back in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, she took of its fruit and ate. This same temptation plan is happening here with David. He sees that she's beautiful, and so he says, I want to taste. I want to know who that is, and he sends someone to go find her. But it starts with just, I saw her and she was pretty. Billy Graham, the famous uh, evangelist, once said, the sin of impurity at the outset does not appear ugly and venomous. It comes in the guise of beauty, symmetry, and desirability. There is nothing repulsive about it. Satan clothed his goddess of lust as an angel of love, and her appearance has deceived even the strongest of men. David has a choice here as he's walking on his rooftop and he sees this woman bathing and sees that she's beautiful. Close your eyes. Turn around. Go anywhere. David, do anything else. And this situation is avoidable. David, go anywhere else. Do anything. Take a walk in the other direction. Go back and take another nap. Do anything and you will not fall into what is about to happen. And yet, instead, he sees her see she is beautiful, and he inquires, and he takes that next step. It's not just now, I see that it's nice, I want to take a bite. And so he inquires, he sends one of his messengers, and the messenger comes back and says, that is the wife of Uriah, one of your mighty men. The mighty men were basically like captains or generals. There was about 30 of them, some of the higher ranking officials. One of his 30 best soldiers, those same soldiers who were fighting a battle he should have been at. It's the wife of one of them. And again here, so he finds out who she is. Again here, and he finds out she's married. He could let this go. He could let it be done. He could walk away. But instead, he lets the sin and the lust take over. And so he sends for her. David and Bathsheba sleep together. And then she leaves and returns home. A one-night stand. Nobody has to know. Once the sin has been committed, she goes home, and you got to figure, David figures, no one got hurt. No one knows. Everything's fine. But as we've seen, as we've walked through this series, and we've looked at these different men and women who have defied God and rebelled against God and sinned, sin always has consequences. There are always repercussions for our actions, and so... Bathsheba sends a message to David very simply, I'm pregnant. You see, when we sin, when we throw that grenade out, the explosion does some damage, but it's the shrapnel. It's, it's when the explosion goes off and, and other things are destroyed around it, that is the damage 
that explosion of this secret sin is going to have far-reaching implications into generations of David's descendants. It does more damage sometimes than the bomb itself. So now David has to come up with a plan. David has to figure out, okay, how am I going to get away with this? Because if it's found out that she's pregnant, I could lose my, my role as king. She could die just by law. I mean, this could end really badly. So David comes up with a plan. He calls Uriah in from the battlefield, the battle that David should have been at. He calls Uriah in and spends some time getting to know him and basically sends him. He says, you know what, why don't you, why don't you hang out here for a couple of days? Go home, get a shower, Sunday night with your wife. David's plan is real simple. The, the fighting, tired soldier comes home, gets a good meal, gets to spend the night with his wife who he hasn't seen in a while. If they have sex, then we can just pretend that Uriah is the father and everything will be fine. But Uriah leaves David's court and he goes and he sleeps on the front porch. Doesn't go into the house. So the next day, David finds out about this, and David says, why wouldn't you go home? Why wouldn't you go spend the night with your wife? And Uriah says, look, David, there are soldiers, my brothers, my men, my fellow men-at-arms are in the fields and tents fighting a battle, putting their lives on the line. I don't feel comfortable spending the night in my bed, getting to sleep with my wife and eat food and take a shower when my guys are out there on the field dying. Do we see here the contrast between Uriah's character and David's character at this point? Uriah's instincts to, to have honor in this situation contrasted with David, who is at this point just looking to survive, just looking for his own self-preservation. So David invites Uriah back to the palace, and they crack open a bottle of wine, and another bottle of wine, and another bottle of wine, and eventually Uriah is... Very, very drunk. And so he sends Uriah home again, hoping this time maybe if he's drunk enough, he won't make such good decisions and he'll go and he'll sleep with his wife. Uriah still, even in his inebriated state, decides, no, I can't put myself in that temptation. I'm going to sleep outside again. Again, David and Uriah have very different character and very different values at this point. So now David is on plan C what to do with Uriah, and he comes up with an idea. He writes a letter to Joab, the one who is the general, the one who is leading the armies, and he sends this letter to Joab, and it says, put Uriah in the hardest part of the battle, wherever the most fighting, the most intense battle is going on, put Uriah there, and as he is fighting, I want you to pull everybody back. I want you to pull everybody back and let him die. So David writes this letter. He seals it with his official seal, and he hands it to Uriah, who has to bring this letter back to the field to give it to Joab. He literally sends Uriah with his own death letter. And Joab reads it and does not question his king, does not question the man in charge. And he puts Uriah right in the battlefield. So skip down to verse 17. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab intentionally starts this fight and, and has men go where it is the most dangerous, the most fighting going on, puts Uriah there, and then pulls people back, but doesn't pull everyone back. Do you see that? Some of the men 
die. So David wants Uriah dead, but in order for Uriah to die, some other people got to die too, or else it looks totally shady, and we're trying to play this cover-up. So David, in trying to get rid of Uriah, has other soldiers, other men who were committed to the cause of defending Israel die just so he could protect his secret sin. David is making poor decision after poor decision. Is stuck in this spiral. After word of Uriah's death comes back, his wife is mourning and weeping, lamenting over him, weeping and crying. Skip down to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. After the mourning was over, now you might think, your husband died, and you're going to mourn for a while, a couple of months, a year even. Seven days. Seven days is how long the standard mourning period was back then. So Bathsheba's in mourning for seven days, and after that seventh day, David says, yeah, that's about enough time. Calls her into the palace, makes her one of his wives. Hey, look, my new wife is pregnant. Crazy how that happened. And now no one is the wiser. David probably felt like he got away with one. No one would ever know what happened, and how would anyone ever question the king? When we sin, when we get away with it, when we, we don't experience any immediate consequences, we think we are in the clear. We think, ah, it's fine. As long as we get through that first couple of days after the sin, nobody knows. And we fool ourselves into thinking no one is paying attention. Right there at the end of verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally translated, it was, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. God sees it. God sees our secret sin. God sees that stuff that we have hidden, that stuff we go to great lengths to hide. God always sees it, and there are always consequences. So after this happens, God sends one of his prophets. He sends Nathan to go and have a conversation with David. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Kind of like how people are with their cats. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but instead he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. So God sends a prophet to ask David's opinion on this situation. And David has no grace, no pity for this rich man. He wants justice. And he more than justice, because the law doesn't have him, uh, the law wouldn't have the rich man be killed. 
he would have to repay and put some interest on it, but not killed. David takes a step further. This man deserves to die. How dare he do this and take advantage of someone? David's gut reaction on hearing this story is the situation is wrong. His gut reaction is that's not right. There needs to be justice there. We always want justice, don't we? Especially for everybody else. We always want justice, as long as it doesn't involve us getting justice. But Nathan is about to open David's eyes. We pick it up, we continue in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God tells David through Nathan, I gave you everything. I made you king. I delivered you from Saul, the guy who was chasing you and throwing spears at your head, and I made it so that you could live and prosper. I gave you everything you could possibly want, and if there was something else you wanted, I would have given it to you. And you see in verse 9 and 10, who does God attribute the death of Uriah to? Not to the Ammonites, not to the other soldiers who weren't doing their job, not to Joab, to David. He attributes Uriah's death to David. Even though David was at home, not at the battlefield, in God's eyes, David killed Uriah. And Nathan begins to lay out these consequences of David's sin, that there would be a sword within the house, there would be destruction in the household, and it would never depart. He goes on to say there are the things that David did in darkness, the things he did in secret, would be done to him and to his family in broad daylight. He would be mocked and ridiculed. His name would be dragged through the mud. And we see as you read on in, in 2 Samuel and in 1 and 2 Kings, we see David's descendants, it's chaos. They're trying to kill each other. They're trying to kill. One of the sons tries to kill David. There's sexual immorality. It is ugly. His own descendants continue in this murderous, sexually immoral track. Even the baby, the baby that Bathsheba has, as a consequence to the sin, dies. Like I said, when that bomb goes off, when that sin, that secret sin that we think we had so well protected, when that goes off, the consequences of that sin are far-reaching and can affect and hurt and destroy innocent bystander. And so now at this point, he has been confronted with his sin. David has one of two options. You can run to God, or you can run away from him. You can hear that you have been confronted, you can see what has happened, and you can see what the consequences are, and you can stay stubborn, stay stuck in your sin, and keep doing whatever you want, or you can repent, confess, and run to God looking for grace and mercy. You have two options, David. And in verse 13, for the first time in a while, David makes a smart decision. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
I have sinned against the Lord. David, when confronted, finally sees what he has done. Finally realizes he has made a mistake and he repents. He runs towards God. He realizes what he has done is evil in the eyes of the Lord. David wrote uh, a lot, most of the Psalms that we have. And I really think the book of Psalms is probably, probably more than any other book. The Bible, it, it gives us this insight into what it really means to be a human. What it really means to be a person struggling with life, struggling with living in this fallen world. We see these psalms that David would write, and it would be, God, I'm so glad you're, you're with me. I'm so glad our relationship is good, and you are giving me blessing on blessing. You are so mighty and powerful. And then you turn the page, and it's, God, where are you? I can't hear from you. I can't see you. Why is everything so hard? He wrote a psalm after this situation. He wrote Psalm 51. Um, and it's a long one. I'm not going to read all of it, but I do want to read some of it because Psalm 51 is written after this encounter with Nathan, Nathan, and it gives us a small glimpse of what David was thinking. I know in 2 Samuel it said, I have, I have sinned against the Lord, and it, it's this simple sentence, but upon a little bit more further time to sit and grieve, David pens this, and so Psalm 51, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read the first couple of verses. If you want to just sit and listen, you can do that as well. Psalm 51. Um, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Have mercy on me. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. These are the words of a man who feels the weight of his sin and is seeking forgiveness. He says at one point in verse 4 there, he says, against you, you alone, you only have I sinned. And you might read that and say, David, even for a poem, um, I think you're, you're skipping some people you sinned against, man. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against those men that you had killed. You sinned against their families. You sinned against Israel. You have done a lot of sinning here. How can you possibly say, against you, you only have I sinned? It's because here, A, it's a poem. We've got to give him a little creative license. But B, David understood something. David understood. He understood that that day, he stood on his rooftop. He stood on the rooftop of the palace as king of Israel, the most powerful man in the land. He had power. He had money. He had everything in abundance. Anything he could have possibly wanted, he had at his fingertips. And he saw that woman, and in his head and in his heart, he decided, God, you've shortchanged me. God, you have not given me what I need. God, I deserve more. I want more. I know better than you. I'm going to do whatever I want. Our sins, regardless of what it is, our sins stripped all the way down to the root is us deciding we know better than God. It's us deciding we're in control, not God. 
I make a better God than God. We can do life better than how God intended it. David understood he did horrible things. And he did severe damage to his family, and it was for generations. But he also understood that his sin truly boiled down to the root was against God. And he had to make that right. My question for us this morning is, how do we respond to the sin in our own lives? Because each one of us have that same option. Do we run to God or do we run away from God? How do we respond? If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a Christian and you, in your sin, when confronted with sin, Keep yourself just dug in. If you're in that spot right now where your heels are dug in and say, nope, I know better. I don't care what the consequences are. I'm going to do whatever I want. I would submit to you, you don't quite understand the grace God is offering. You don't quite understand what it means that God gives grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And grace frees us to run toward God. If you are a Christian, you have this relationship with God where it does not matter what you have done. You can always run. There is nothing you have done nor anything that you will do that is too big and too ugly for God to forgive. Even in the midst of David's worst, he is a lying, adulterous murderer. I mean, they just put him up against the Ten Commandments. He's batting. Maybe he can claim he didn't, you know, he honored his mother and father. Outside of that, he pretty much breaks every one of them in a very small window of time. And yet David understood There was grace to be had. There was forgiveness, that his God had love and forgiveness and grace for him. In verse 7 there he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a a plant and was an herb used in cleansing of people with skin disease, lepers mainly. It was part part of the sacrificial system. And David says, with that in mind, I'm, I'm blotted, I'm, I'm covered in disease, but God, you can make me clean. You can wash me and I can be whiter than snow. David lied and killed and committed adultery, and yet he understood rightly that God's grace is high and deep and wide enough to forgive us our sins. David understood that there was grace to be found. That this was not the end for him. It wasn't that, man, I have made mistake after mistake and now I'm just stuck here. He understood that there was a way out. The work of Jesus at the cross pays the penalty for our sin, for David's sin, and makes it possible for us to be, as David says, cleansed and washed. There's a song we're going to sing here in a little bit called Oh the Blood. And the chorus for that song This is good, since we don't have words on the screen, and we can learn it a little bit now. The chorus for that song goes, Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Oh, the blood of Jesus shed for me. What a sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood, it is my victory. Jesus' death makes it possible for us to respond, even in those moments where you sin, you feel broken, you feel like God could never forgive me. Jesus' death at the cross makes it possible for us to run to him. There is nothing that you have ever done nor anything that you will do that God cannot forgive. I've said this multiple times and I will say it many, many more. You cannot outsin God's grace. You cannot outsin God's love. There is nothing, there is no one here, there is no one anywhere that is too broken, too messed up, 
If you have been at CF at all for the last five months, we have seen liars and cheaters and murderers and adulterers. We have seen all kinds of the most messed up, ugly people. And God says, I'm going to redeem this. I'm going to fix this. I am going to use you. All throughout these lines of generations, we've seen a bunch of messed up people that God says, I can do something with this. I can make this good. We have seen some of the worst people used by God to further his plan. There will be chaos in the house of David for generations. It will be ugly and messy and just bad. And yet still from his lineage, one day there's going to be a baby boy born to a virgin. One day there's going to be this baby boy who is born, who is going to grow up and teach and heal and love and be betrayed and be arrested, and be beaten, and be killed, and be buried, and raised from the dead. And he's going to have genetic ties to David, this adulterous murderer who let his role as king go to his head. Because God takes what is broken and he makes it right. He fixes what has been destroyed. Grace and forgiveness was there for David, and it's there for us today. That same grace, that same forgiveness, that same God, we can run to you today. You can be forgiven. You can experience this grace and forgiveness of God. You can be seen as new and clean in the eyes of God. All that needs to be done is to acknowledge your sins and to accept that Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin, for my sin, so that we can have a new right relationship with God, so that we can be seen as clean and new and forgiven. David messed up big time. But when it came time for him to be confronted with his sin, when he came time for things to be brought to light as they're always going to be brought to the light, he had one of two options. Did he run to God or away from God? He chose to run toward God. He chose to let his, his relationship with God be fixed, not by himself, not by his works, but by God. By God saying, I forgive you. I love you. This morning, if you are in a spot where you are battling with some kind of sin, if you are struggling, if you are fighting, or if you aren't fighting and you're just entrenched in your secret sin, bring it to light. There is forgiveness and grace and love to be found at the cross of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, you're the God who gives blessing upon blessing to us. You're the God who wakes us up in the morning. You're the God who keeps this earth spinning. And you're the God who, when we are at our lowest and ugliest and worst spot, you are the God who forgives. You are the God we can go to. We can repent. Even if it's for the billionth time, you do not hold those things against us. You do not keep a, a list of all the ways we have messed up, but you forgive. You forgive through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Christ. You forgive. God, thank you for grace. God, what we deserve, what I deserve is death. What I deserve is nothing good. But because of the death of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, I can be washed clean. And we can be washed clean and seen as new, and seen as your sons and daughters. God, there's not enough hours in the day, enough words in the, our vocabulary to thank you enough, to express our gratitude and our worship and our love for you enough for that fact. 
God, I pray this morning for anyone here who is in a spot where they are struggling, where they don't know what to do, where they are in a place where they feel like they can't run to you, that they've messed up too big or too much. Prove to them, show them, remind them how big you are. Remind them that you are a God who cares and you are a God bigger than any sin, any poor decision we have made. God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for us, to give us new life. Lord, we thank you for who you are, what you have done, what you continue to do. We pray all of these things because of Jesus, and in his name, amen.